Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, uh, Hillary is right to get at the humour of this story. It subverts expectations. Things don't turn out the way that sensible people would have chosen it. And it's so often your way. And if we were abandoned to a sensible God, what trouble we would be in. As we consider your word now, we ask that you would again surprise us with your grace and delight us to know of your choice in Christ. Amen. Could you do me a fa- favour at the start of this? Because I, I realised that after a while doing my job, you kind of get to know certain stories very well. And you're never quite sure um, uh, how well others have um, uh, encountered them. Could you put your hand in the air if you've ever heard that story before? Okay, thank you. That's still a good number short of everyone. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. Well, do you remember the early days of summer and Wimbledon? And John Inverdale saying of the French tennis player uh, Bartoli, uh, uh, just uh, in an interchange in the commentary box, as he watched her playing, uh, he said to whoever it was in the commentary box beside him, do you think her father said to her one day, you're never going to be a looker? I am slightly surprised he kept his job. But it's proof, if needed, that man does indeed look at the outward appearance. And it may be that it's one of those cases where man means man. But I suspect uh, women can do it just as much. And if we remember this story, I reckon it's probably that little bit that we remember. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Isn't that nice? And that in itself tells us something about how we can treat the Old Testament. It's nearly all narrative. And what are we to do with it? Says so something happened. Well, okay, but so what? How does the something that happened give us any meaning today? And often what we then do is we go into the passage and we kind of suck out some sort of principle from it, which in this case would be man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We take it out of the story and apply the principle. The story gets, gets forgotten, like you might sort of crack open an, uh, an egg. And you've got the, the bit you want, so you throw the shell away. And what then do we do with that principle? I reckon a good number of you could preach a sermon on that principle that runs something like this. Not many of us are uh, extraordinary in outward appearance. Not many are beautiful rich or well-bred. Not many of us, obviously some of us, are going to be in Hello magazine, but not many of us. And we say, well, nonetheless, do you know, I'm okay because I have a good heart. Even when we sort of know that we don't, as our confession and the words of Jesus reminded us. But I don't want to throw away the story. I reckon that if God wanted the story at telling, he did it for a reason, and the story is our key. And that's where I want to pay attention tonight. 
do please make sure you've got it open. Uh, it's page 287. And surprisingly, there isn't actually anything in this story, in what we've heard tonight, about David's heart. Samuel reviews the sons of Jesse as they come before him, and he would happily have chosen the first one, Eliab. And that's when God says, no, don't look at the appearance or the heart, for I have rejected him. It's very solemn, actually, that. It's, very, it's, very, it's not just I haven't chosen him, it's I've rejected him. The Lord, we're told, looks at the heart. And then the other sons are sent for. And all of the other six trapes before Samuel. No, 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 no. So let's send for the other one. Is there another one? Yeah, but he's off looking after the flocks. <clears throat> well, we won't sit down until he comes. Now, let me just do, do some background with you, because there's tremendous drama in this moment. Um, when I had a sabbatical and went to um, Israel-Palestine, uh, where I was staying, the kind of Bethlehem was sort of at the bottom of the garden. Um, and so I know, because I've walked it a couple of times, you can walk from the centre of Jerusalem to Bethlehem these days on good pavements, and it takes you just over an hour. So I had another ten minutes, because it was a very big garden. Um, and then say, well, in those days, that would have been half a day. Now, Jerusalem was just a, a foreign uh, encampment uh, at this point. Saul had his headquarters uh, a, a couple of miles north again of Jerusalem. So it's still probably within the half a day that it would have taken. But Samuel came from a little bit further north again. So the problem that Samuel is going to have in getting to Bethlehem, which is where this happens, is he's got to go from where he is through the territory of Saul to get to Bethlehem. And he's very nervous. And when he gets to Bethlehem, everyone is deeply anxious about what he's there for. He has, to, um, he has to do something that looks like an excuse. I'm here to sacrifice. Well, he does, he, and he takes the sacrifice. But all of the, the people down in Bethlehem, the elders of the town, are really worried because they know that, Sa that Saul, the king, has been in trouble with God. They know that Samuel is God's agent. So if Samuel's turning up, Whatever it's going to be, it's not going to be good news. So he's asked, doesn't say why, he's asked to see the sons of Jesse. And none of them works. And so he says, okay, someone go and get uh, the one who's looking after the flocks. And they wait. That's the bit of the one of the story, uh, bit, bits of the story I love. So he sent and had him brought in. And there's nothing happens in between. Uh, we, we learn that uh, he will eventually be anointed in the presence of his brothers. But the whole, the, the tone of this is of the gathering. Everyone's kind of standing around, twiddling their thumbs and wondering what's going to be happening. So off uh, someone goes, gets David uh, and comes back. We won't sit down, says Samuel. Can't even sit down until David comes. David was the, 
the most unimportant member of Jesse's family by being the last and youngest. But all the elders, all the brothers have to stand waiting for him to turn up. Anoint him, says God. He is the one. But that's all he says. There's nothing at that point about his heart. And actually, we do need to go back a little further in the story. If you've got the Bible open, turn back a couple of pages to chapter 13 and verse 14. Uh, Saul is the king. I'll come back to that in a minute. But chapter 13 and verse 14. God is talking to uh, Saul, says, Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So we do know that the Lord has found David on the basis of seeking out a man after his own heart. Just a quick little filler in of the backstory. The uh, people of God had had what are called in the Bible judges, not people who kind of wear wigs and say, um, uh, you know, four months for you, Um, but uh, those who, they were warriors, basically, who would again and again deliver God's people. But the people got tired of that arrangement and wanted something more permanent. So they say, we want a king. God warned them, you won't like it, but they insist. And God chooses Saul as the first king. It starts off okay, but then he goes to the bad, and God rejects him, and that's written down for us there in verse 1 of our reading tonight. How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him? So if we learn from 13, chapter 13, that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, why, oh why, is that completely omitted in the story tonight? Why isn't it there? And it's not only that that is omitted, something really um, frustrating for the preacher turns up. Because in verse 12 of chapter 16, the situation is complicated in that what we read about David is exactly the kind of physical detail that is supposed not to matter. Look at verse 7. Do not consider his appearance or his height. Verse 12 about David, he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Now, maybe there's some aspect of that, that one cancels out the other. The the element that's there and not considered by God in verse 7 seems to be height. Um, uh, But let's assume that uh, that, uh, uh, that verse 12 has got the same kind of stuff in it. Why is it there? Well, we can be sure that the physicality is irrelevant. Firstly, because we've already heard about his heart. Secondly, there's a shift in the kind of subject. Samuel, in verse 12, Samuel is the prophet, who's the kind of kingmaker, has David brought in, and everyone sees what Samuel sees, that he's ruddy, has a fine appearance and handsome features. But there's no sign that God pays any attention to that. Because what happens is the Lord says, rise and anoint him, he's the one. And if we've read the story up to now, it's rise and anoint him. He's always been the one. Never mind the fact that he's grown up uh, to be ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Now, we would think, because of the way the story then goes on into 1 Samuel, that this is going to be the story of David. We read it as the story of the downfall of Saul and the rise of David. Much as we talk about the acts in the New Testament, after the Gospels, 
uh, as the acts of the apostles, but we could equally talk of the acts of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is here in these chapters probably the main character on the stage. Look how everything ends and begins. Uh, Verse uh, 13 of chapter 16. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went went back to Ramah. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. That's the real kingmaker, kingbreaker, the Holy Spirit. And it means that there's an essential mystery at the heart of this story. Saul's heart turns aside from God's ways. David is a man after God's heart. We're told something about the characters. But it's the Spirit of God that casts down and raises up. We can't say why Saul turned bad or what it was in David. Why he, that explains why he turned to be a man after God's heart. It's a mystery. The people wanted kings because the problem with the judges is that they were sort of unpredictable. You would never know whether one was going to arise. The people wanted to get away from this business where um, the Spirit of God might one day be on Jonathan Peace to deliver God's people and uh, another day be on Simeon Smith uh, to deliver God's people. They wanted to have some guarantees, some stability. And one of the things that's going to go on in this story is God reminding his people that you don't get stability just because you've got a king. It's still the story of my Holy Spirit. And it tells us how much attention we should give to the story of the Spirit in the Old Testament. We don't just suck out principles. We're those who ought to know about the Spirit and be deeply interested in what the Spirit is doing. You see, one thing we can do with verse 7, the bit with the principle in, man not, or God not looking at the heart, at the outward appearance. One thing we can do is to say, well, I may not be beautiful, but I do have a good heart. Well, actually, no, you don't, any more than I do. It's not the point. If we focus from this story on what we think we have, it only goes to show that we have nothing. But if from this story, however, we recognize that we have nothing, then we are better placed to receive from God the power, the mercy, and the grace of his Spirit. So that's one point that surprised me when I came to this material. Let's read these stories as the stories of the Holy Spirit. And let's long for and desire the activity of the Spirit in our lives. But there is another and different point to make. Left to itself, that point alone would lead us down a particular track to a particular prayer. We could read the story and say, David had the Spirit in his life. I'd like the Spirit in my life. Please make me a David. And that forgets what the Old Testament is about. What is the Old Testament about? I'm not asking for answers uh, to come back because I'm going to tell you. It's about Jesus. Sometimes that's obvious, perhaps in the prophecies of Isaiah. Sometimes it's not obvious. As we read the New Testament, then we go back into the Old Testament and it colours in the picture of who Jesus is. 
If we ever find ourselves passing straight from the Old Testament to our own lives without going through Jesus, then something has gone wrong. And that's what's wrong with a prayer that says, David had the Spirit, I'd like the Spirit, make me like David. Go straight from David to me without going through Jesus. And the danger of that is that we're putting ourselves back in the days of the judges when the Spirit was occasional, might have landed a few days on Jonathan Peace and then disappeared. Might have landed for a few days on Simeon Smith and then disappeared. It was more for judges than for the people, more for the kings than the plebs, more, if you like, for Prince George than Alan Strange. Jesus is King David's greater son. The, the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. What's going on in uh, chapter 16 is hugely important in terms of the New Testament. This is the anointed one. He takes the horn of oil to Samuel and anoints David in the presence of his brothers. It's a public act. They must have been terrified. There's no public dismissal yet of Saul. Only the main players have heard of Saul's uh, rejection. So imagine that the, the kingmaker comes to your family gathering one day and says, you heard about all this fuss about Prince George in the papers. Well, um, it's not going to be Prince George, it's going to be you. You would be terrified. Because you would wonder what's going on. But Samuel is clear. Jesus is King David's greater son. The spirit that was occasional upon Saul, transferable from Saul, granted to David, yes, but that spirit is permanently and eternally upon the Son of God, and therefore permanently and eternally upon and within those who are his people, you and me. We are chosen in Christ. And so while there is a Son of God who's uniquely a son in his way, there's millions of sons and daughters who are God's children and anointed by God's spirit because they are in Christ. Today and tomorrow, you are in Christ. You are anointed by the spirit of Christ. You have been anointed, and it is not going to be taken away if you are among those who, when we come to it in a little while, can say with confidence that you believe in Jesus Christ. So this story exists to colour in the anointedness of God's people, a spirit that's necessary, a spirit that's powerful, a spirit that makes the difference between God's rejection and God's favour. That's the spirit in which we live and move. It's not written to tell us that if only we would understand about God not caring about our outward appearance, God would grant us favour. It's a story to tell us, once we read the New Testament, of the difference that we have been granted favour already, permanently. This is giving us the background to reinforce the difference from David's time. The Old Testament looked forward to the day when God would grant his spirit to all his people and create in them a new heart. And that has happened. If we don't straight, jump straight from David to ourselves, if we go via Jesus, we're compelled to realise this story isn't about having or not having the spirit in the life of the believer. 
we do have the Spirit at work in us. We must think of ourselves as anointed, as uh, blessed beyond measure to approach his table tonight. And as David was anointed to be king, so we are anointed for some activity, ministry or work as the Spirit builds the church. Your heart and mine, because we're sinners, will always try to find its way to an interpretation of Scripture that avoids responsibility before God. We can read the passage of God's goodness to David and say, oh, if only I had, then I would. It's not good enough in the light of this passage and the New Testament. Rather, what we need to say is, because God has, then I will. Not I would, but I will. Because the Spirit has been given. We are anointed. We're not waiting for something that David had that we haven't. We're living in what Jesus had, and therefore we have. And just in the same way as we come to his table... It's not, if only I could have Jesus in my life, then I would. But rather, it's at this table of all tables, because I do have Jesus in my life, then I will. Let's pray. We prayed at the beginning of our service about the things that come out of our heart. Spend a moment in quiet, thinking of where you know, there'll be times you don't know about yet, but where you do know that you need the Holy Spirit of God to be active in your life. Not because you've got to pray him down from heaven and he's not around, but because you are already anointed and you want him to be at work in your heart because he can being with you. Lord God, what shall we do with uh, this material that you have caused to be written in your word? It's tempting for us to look at it and say, well, our lives must be the same as that. And yet as we study it, we're reminded that because of the story of your spirit, our lives are so very different. And the truth may be that we've simply forgotten or not taken into account the truth that we are anointed, that your spirit is made available to us and we ask for him to be mightily at work 
powerfully to use the word that's in our story as we go into the week and the weeks that lie ahead. We've thought before you of some of the challenges we face. Perhaps it's relationships with others. Perhaps it's internal battles within ourselves, dealing with things we don't like and hope no one finds out about. We ask you, uh, just as David's story has this anointing but two others, so may we have a fresh anointing of your spirit. And may he work in power among us. Amen.